Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Matters. This program is produced and recorded in the studios of WOUB Public Media in Athens, Ohio. I'm your host, Scott Titsworth, Dean of the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Students can enter academic risk for a number of reasons, including social, economic, familial, and of course, lack of academic preparation. Although many students have potential risk factors, there are certain points in time when those risk factors could become more prominent and impactful. For instance, when students take make transitions from their in their academic journey from high school to college, or even when they transition to high school, those are moments in time when they're in transition, and those risk factors can become much more challenging for a particular student. So today, we'll be discussing the challenges facing students as they undergo transition, particularly as they transition into college. I'm joined today by Wendy Merb Brown, who is the Assistant Dean and University College at Ohio University. As part of her duties, Wendy has coordinated the expansion, both in quantity and quality, of a substantial learning community program designed to support students who are in transition to college. Wendy, welcome to Teaching Matters. Thank you. So let's start by uh, talking about um, generally the program um, that you coordinate. But, but I think before we get to that, I want to delve more deeply into some of these risk factors that, that over the course of your career, you've seen them come to college with. So as you think about when a student comes from um, high school to Ohio University or perhaps other places like a regional campus or a community college to Ohio University, what are some of the risk factors that they sort of walk in the door with in a general sense? Well, first of all, a lot of the things that happen that that affect their transition have nothing to do with in- intellect. It has everything to do with how well, how how strong they make decisions, how well they make decisions, how they are prepared for their academic coursework in terms of study skills, time management, things like that. They could be the smartest person and still struggle in college. So this, I think, is for any student going away to um, to pursue any higher education. What we're finding on our residential campus and somewhat to our regional campuses are our students are coming in with net without having a very um, common understanding of studying and how to study, uh, how to study for different types of courses. We study very differently for a math-centered course than we do for something heavily reading or writing. And being able to transition in that when in high school they had very little time to study. In fact, I had a conversation with an um, an educator in K through 12 saying that they were told to limit the homework they're giving their students. Well, when when and how are they learning how to do this? So they come to us as first year students not having learned those skills. And like any skill, you don't grow up, you just don't have it, you have to practice it, you have to develop it, you have to figure out what works for you, may not work for somebody else. And so when you're finding that out, you have to apply it. And oftentimes those first times applying it, you don't do it well. So there's a real risk here about students being prepared in terms of just their own behaviors around academics. But the other thing is there's not prepared, they are not prepared for, how shall I say, a, a problem. Um, uh, maybe they have been a very intelligent person who's always sailed through things. Um, and they come to school and they take that first exam and they fail it, or they don't do as well on a paper that they expect to. How they bounce back from that, their resilience, is becoming a really huge part of our research in higher education right now because students just haven't been ready for that. So their risk factors, like I said, are more, I would say, study skills, time management, some of those skill development, but then also how do you deal with a setback? Are you prepared? That's really interesting because I, you know, having read a lot of stuff related to academic risk because of some of my own research projects, that word resilience is not one that I've seen very often. But you're absolutely right. I mean, as a teacher, I know that after the first quiz even, um, 
I will expect at a large number because I, I taught a lot of freshmen in, in my um, comms 101 class. And um, and I would know that after the first quiz, there would be a bevy of students. I, I like it, but they'll come in and talk because for the first time in their career, they've not gotten an A. No, they faced a setback. They aren't. It's that grit, mm-hmm. that ability that uh, many when um, in my generation, when we were growing up, if something happened, you had to bounce back or you were going to not do well. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, we have set our students up in, in our different experiences, whether good or bad, but they're just not prepared as we would hope they would be for when something happens, it doesn't go well. So who who does that? How, how do we help them do that? How mm-hmm. do we how do we as educators at the at the higher education level help them with that transition? It, and, and it sounds like you agree with the premise that it's really the points in transition that that accentuate those risks risks for students in, in sort of a greater detail. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's when those things happen that we find out how well do they handle stress. Mm-hmm. Um, stressors are always going to happen, but if they've never had to develop those coping mechanisms, then they're not going to be able to cope with those stressors when they hit them. And many of them hit them at the same time when they're trying a new transition in whatever that is. And that's for any of us. If we, if today in my advanced age, I start to go do something new, I'm going to have stressors for that newness, that transition is going to happen to me. How well I handle it's going to base on how my, my experience is and what I've mm-hmm. learned. Mm-hmm. Because I'm older, I'll probably learn how to do that a little bit better. These students haven't learned those kinds of things. So that mm-hmm. oftentimes puts them, that's why the resilience is so challenging or those those opportunities are challenging and they don't have that grit yet. Yeah. Now, mm-hmm. you and I are both parents of, you know, mm-hmm. teenagers and young adult yes. uh, uh, women. And, and I know that, you know, the transition to college is what your position and job focuses on here. But we also know from our experiences as parents that those sim- similar transitions happens when they go from grade school to middle school, middle school to high school. Are there, as you think about a college student's experience, so there's the transition into college that is one of those transitional experiences that could accentuate risk factors. What about after they're already here? Are there moments or transitional moments that aren't as big as going to college for the first time, but but yet are still um, transitional moments that are impactful and could, could accentuate risk? Absolutely. I think one of them is a change in their career path. So that's changing or developing a new major or picking up something, a different course of study than they planned. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that isn't figured out until the end of their first year when they've taken maybe an introductory course and they realize this is not what I want to do. Well, that, that happens again They have to because now they have to find a new academic home or determine what is it, why am I here? What is all those things happen again when they have a mm-hmm. new major? Um, more often, sometimes it happens when they're moving in the residence halls. If something, their second year, for example, they lived with a certain person or persons their first year that worked out well or not, uh, then they transition to a different learning, a living environment. And they're going to do it again their third year when they move off campus in our, in our Athens community. That tends to be their junior year. Mm-hmm. They're going to move off campus and then have responsibilities for their home. Um, if you add any sort of then personal issue, health in a fam- of a family member, a change in a relationship, a significant relationship, those are going to exacerbate them even more. Mm-hmm. But from the university structure, I would say that changing the major, living with a new person, um, having a different academic experience like that, those trigger those transition issues as well. So I, so I think one of the things we could say to sort of summarize this part of the discussion is that academic risk is something that every student has. It's not that some students are immune to it. And I think importantly that there are big moments of transition and also some, some less big but still important moments of transition 
intervention that could make those risk factors sort of become prominent in a student's life. And so from that perspective as educators, we should always have that at the forefront of our mind that students have these risk factors and that various things could make them become very prominent for that student and that we should be aware of those. Absolutely. Now, now before we get into the learning community program, which is really what we want to focus on, there's one other question about this idea of risk and transition that I wanted to just get your opinion on. Um, you know, you, you and I have been around the block for a while now, and we've seen different generations of students. You know, I started here in 2001, and I don't remember when you started, but... 1991. <laughs> okay, so, so we've seen different generations of students mm-hmm. here. Do you think, um, based upon your observations and, and really knowing these students well, are the risk factors different now, or are there additional ones than maybe in previous generations of students? And the context behind that question is, of course, that these generation of students that are starting their freshman year um, this year, you know, they grew up as digital natives. They grew up really with social media as a part of their life for as long as they can remember and, and things like that. And so it's a different climate now. And, and does that create new or does it change the risk factors that influence them? I think there are going to always be certain risk factors that have been there and will be there, depending on the experience. But there are definitely different ones in my time I've been here. Uh, when I started in higher education, we didn't have um, cable in rooms, for example. We didn't have telephones. We definitely didn't have computers. We didn't have we had phones in rooms in residence halls. And when students came to our campus, they socialized around a, a common television. Mm-hmm. So an example that I think I use oftentimes when I explain to people about this transition, and and that's what twenty some years ago. But um, when they used to, when students used to, well, everybody wanted to watch television. That was an important thing. And cables were in the lobbies. So we had one television per 250 to 300 students. Mm -hmm. And they would have to go down to this lobby to watch their favorite television shows. And so the evenings and the daytimes, those lobbies were packed with students. And in one area of our campus at Ohio University, we have a front four area that were traditional halls. And every building had a, one had ABC, one had NBC. One had CBS and one had maybe one or the other. And students went, they knew which building had their soap opera in the afternoon on, on uh, during the weekday. They knew which one had their events. And if, if nobody were there, then they would start watching television. But if someone walked up and wanted to change the channel or wanted to make a decision, you had to have a conversation with the person there. You had to say, like, this is what I want to watch, or are you going to watch this later? And then there was a lot of negotiation that took place face-to-face conversations about what we're going to watch. And it seems very simplistic at this point, but there would be, and I'm not exaggerating, 50 to 100 people sometimes in those lobbies watching a certain television program, depending on what day or night it was. And so that caused a real connection. A few years later, we got rid of cable in the rooms, or we put cable in the residence halls by demand of our students. We wanted to be competitive as an institution, and cable was going into people's rooms. As soon as we did that, there was nobody in the lobby mm-hmm. because they then had access to this in their own space, and that became a little an entity there. Then, at a couple more years later, we then put computers in people's rooms. We provided them as an institution. Well, at that point, then they stopped having conversations with each other because they were in the, on the computer. So we've um, that's just at this institution. Not even talking about what they come in when they when they start, but this is after they got here. I saw we saw some marked differences. When it comes to building community, which is part of that learning process, we were losing that. 
And we struggled and needed to come up with uh, ways to challenge them to have conversations. Um, I had focus groups with students. What, we, what can we do to help this happen? And their conversations to them, I said, what does it mean to be a respectful community member or a, or a, a community, a, co- a helpful community member? And their responses were things like, um, well, if I put my headphones on and listen to my music, I'm not bothering my roommate. And that's being responsible. What I would have liked to have heard was, <laughs> I put my music on and I t- and I share it with my roommate, and mm-hmm. then my roommate has their music and I listen to what they're listening to, and we learn from one another. Instead, we became very compartmentalized and very central about what I don't want to bother anybody. Mm-hmm. Now, a lot of our technology has caused that to then become even more exacerbated. Everyone has a cell phone now. Everyone, I mean, you have a computer in your hand. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity to have a conversation is challenging. And what we're finding now from our students is they're less likely to have a conversation with someone if they're bothered by them or if there's a problem because they don't want to get them upset with them. Mm-hmm. So we get this real resistance to, well, I want you to like me. So therefore, I, because that's part of the transition is fitting in. I want you to like me, so I'm not going to confront you on this, or I'm not going to talk to you about this. Well, we know when you're with people, you're going to get in an argument and disagreement. So now we have a lot more discussion issues that are not occurring. We're not having civil disagreements. We're having arguments because people are uncomfortable with that conversation, mm-hmm. and they're not equipped to know how to have it. So that's a big thing I've seen with um, with civility and people's ability and comfort level to having those conversations with one another. Um, technology has played into that. It's a really succinct and interesting summary of sort of how technology has mm-hmm. changed the social fabric of a mm-hmm. university just in a matter of, you know, a decade and a half mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, I, I remember when I was in college, it was the same thing about the community television and mm-hmm. having to have dialogue about what whether you're going to watch professional wrestling or something else you know <laughs> and and those are those are things that you learn to do in college and now you're right i mean you know you're it, it's more likely you'll see a student by themselves on their cell phone um, not even talking to their roommate, you know, because they don't have to. So. Well, ironically, that same ability to have technology at our fingertips has given our students more global understanding of what's going on. Yeah. So while they are not equipped for the conversations, they are definitely more globally interested in what's happening. Mm-hmm. They're way more interested in diversity issues than students 25, 30 years ago. They're mm-hmm. much more accepting, understanding, because they're more exper- they're more exposed to these sorts of things. So technology yeah. has given us some wonderful opportunities. And communication that is constant with people we care about. I mean, those are positives. I don't want to put it all that technology has killed the university community in any way, shape, or form. But it definitely has had negatives, but it's also had positives. And I call them challenges because I think it makes, as educators, we then need to come up with a way to help students get that information Mm -hmm. when they're not doing it in a natural way. Yeah. Um, Wendy, let's transition to talking about uh, the Learning Community Program because it directly speaks to the, the, the the problem or challenge that you've articulated. And, and really, there's two things that I that I think listeners will be interested in. Um, the first obvious one is just what is the program? How is it structured? But I think that the to me, because I was able to witness it, the, the, the real story that's fascinating about it is how that program sort of had a genesis at Ohio University, and then how it progressively expanded um, and, and did so rather quickly and successfully. I think that's a real story that is is important because it whether somebody in a, at another place is trying to create a learning community program or just do some sort of campus-wide initiative that is intended to have a big impact, the story of how you sort of scale up those sorts of programs 
just as you did with the learning community program is an important one to hear and understand sort of how it happened. So, so let's start by talking about what the learning community program is um, from sort of a structural sense. What are your goals? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and how do you structure it in a way to accomplish those goals? Sure. Um, well, first of all, the learning community <clears throat> trend started in higher education and toward the end of 90s. It really started taking off. And it started taking off, and I give a lot of credit to the folks at um, NESI, National Survey of Student Engagement, who were informing us in a very succinct way where we were or were not helping our students engage mm-hmm. in our campuses. And so um, nationally, there was a big trend to say we need, and especially with larger institutions, we need to do a better job of connecting our students to one another, to our institution, to our faculty, and to their learning. And so we were given that tool by this Nessie um, survey, and we were not any different than any other institution. We said this is we definitely have an issue. Our upper class students, interestingly enough, from that survey were doing were um, engaged at a higher level nationally than others, but our first year students were much lower than the national average, and so we we had a problem um, that when we knew, but it was so that tells us well they somehow got engaged. You know something was going on at our institution because if they stayed and they did well, then they were going to do really. Um, um, succeed at our institution. So we needed to figure that out. And one of the answers was this learning community program. And we started it in residence life with an opportunity for students to live together and take a couple classes together because that was a national trend. Much easier to try things outside of academia <laughs> than it mm-hmm. is within. Um, and so we tried it there. Seem to get some success. But what really took off for us is that um, when you look at our model, and it's a learning community for us is a group of students who take a common set of courses their first semester or their first term, the time we started, we were quarters. Um, but we started to do it that first term because that's when the transition matters. We need to engage all research about retention says you need the first five, four, five, six weeks right in that pocket is when we need to get them engaged. If we if we go six weeks and they're not engaged, then we're losing them. They're mm-hmm. not gonna, they're not gonna be successful here, they're not gonna feel a part of our community, et cetera. So we knew that first term was very important. Um, So our model is pretty simple in a concept, but um, students who take a common set of courses together, and that group of students is the learning community. So um, three main components in our program. The first thing is that these students take a seminar class together, and that's where they get to know each other taught by our faculty member or someone within their major or program of study, more, um, most that's what we're gay, that's our goal is, um, because then they connect with a, a personal way to someone who hopefully will have a connection with them the whole their whole undergraduate experience. That seminar teaches them everything they need to know to be a successful student. All of those things that we talk about, study skills, time management, how to use the library, what are academic resources that we have on this campus to help them, um, how can we engage them in that, What is how important is diversity in our community and in our, in our learning, um, and again, and those are just a kind of a touch point, but it's not any, that's not, that's pretty typical for our students, our, our transition programs across the nation. So that seminar gives them that information. Then they take a common set of courses together, two thirds of their schedule. So if they take five classes, about three of them are going to be with this group. So then they're embedded, um, that group of 25 is embedded in these classes. They know people when they go into these larger lectures. They can sit beside each other. They can ask questions after class. They can go talk to faculty together if they need an arm or someone to drag with them. Mm-hmm. Um, they're more likely to do that. They're more likely to raise their hand and engage in that learning. So two-thirds of their schedule, we still wanted them to have some things without the group because that's important. And then the final part is an upper-class peer leader because according to all the research in higher education, peers are the number one influence on their success. So let's give them a positive peer influence who can be that leader and role model. And they go to the seminar with them. Uh, Sometimes they facilitate class discussions when they're relevant for a peer to be facilitating it. More often than not, they're planning out a class activities. They're taking them 
come to events on campus. They're showing them how to do that. They're walking them through these steps so that that first semester they need every they have everything they need. So that's our program, three main things, and um, it's been working. And just uh, so the course that I taught um, before I became dean, you know, but I'll, mm-hmm. I'll describe to the listeners just so they get a sense of how these uh, embedded learning communities can 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 work. Um, my class had 400 students in it. So it was one of those typical big lecture hall classes where very easy for first year students to be completely lost and not engaged because the fact is it's not a very engaging experience. But um, as, as this program evolved and, and started to grow, my class went from being sort of this, what I would just describe as an open enrollment class where students would register like any other class to where like 60 to 70% of the students in that class would be in learning communities. And so out of those 400 students, there would be these pockets of like 23 to 25 students that would all be in a learning community together. And the way that I used that in my course, because I did some group-based projects in that course, um, I would group them around their learning communities. And so it's just an example of how you can take a a large number of students in a large class and still have there be a small community that they're a part of um, that's coordinated between your program and my course. And it's not that it's easy, but it's also not hard once you do it. Well, the concept itself is pretty simple. We're trying to help our students go through these steps with people to help them. It's all about connections and engaging them in a small community. And when Mm -hmm. we have 4,000 first-year students, if I'm one of that 4,000, I'm lost. If I'm one of 20 to 25, I have people around me who are in the same experience, and now I have a faculty member who's going to help me engage in that. I'm in classes with these people, so now I have a little bit more comfort level. I know that it's not I'm not the only first-year student in that class, so mm-hmm. again, I'll be more comfortable raising my hand or even talking to my friends about that class. Mm-hmm. But it, it gives them a sense of connection. And, then the, and so the learning can happen in a structured way once we get rid of all of those anxiety types of things that occur when you're in a new place and, and want to fit in and want to meet mm-hmm. others. Um, and so that's that's exactly what you're talking about. I mean, when you break them up into small groups in that class, that's why we have small groups and yeah. we have small classes. We know that we can engage them. Now, some of the other strategies that you've used over the years and, and continue to use is that you um, specifically targeted some of the high enrollment courses um, that are at the 1,000 or 100 level, um, depending upon which year you look at. Uh, we switched to thousands mm-hmm. um, when we switched to semesters. And so some of those courses, like, for example, public speaking, English composition, are also courses that might be part of these linked um, communities. Uh, is, that, is that still the case? Yes. Now, what about, and now I know that you made a, uh, I don't know if it was a transition as much as just sort of a strategic um, opportunity when you expanded the program. Many of the learning communities are sort of focused around major areas of study, right? Yes. And so I'll tell you why we came to that or how we came to that. Um, we, I was in residence life at the time, and so we were very committed to the students living together. And it was mm-hmm. our way of connecting academics. And as an associate director of residence life, my role was to connect academics to their living. And that's challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what this learning community, was, this was a great way for us to do that in intentional ways. But what happened until 2000, gosh, it was 2004, we were only enrolling out of our 4,000 students. We, the most we had was exactly 239 in 2004. 
for. And we had tried to reach out and because we were finding the courses that we were clustering were general education and we were just going to faculty and staff in these larger courses who would allow us, who we had connections with, who would allow us to reserve these seats. And we found that those didn't fit many majors. After I started meeting with the colleges and they'd say, well, Wendy, you put these together and they're great, but our students don't need those classes. So we're mm-hmm. not going to encourage them to take them. And I thought, well, that was silly. Why wouldn't I look at that first? And so I met with all the departments and said, so what would you want them to take? Like, if you're going to have your group of students, I met with colleges first because they were that's the kind of the macro. And so I we had tried this on this gen ed concept. And again, I was not getting everybody. So we went to the colleges and they, they I said, what do you want them to take? And they gave me a list. They said, our students in the College of Business need these classes. Our students in the College of Communication need this classes and uh, this group. And education needed these. And that's how they fulfilled their general education, but also with college required courses. And I said, well, we can get those. And so I went to the departments and I said, can I have these seats? Can I have, and they were the, really, a lot of them were the ones I was already using. We were just being more intentional in how we put them together. And once we started doing that at the college level, well, then we could assess our data. And that's another big piece of this was measurement. Did we make a difference? Are we really, can we see that? Because when I'm going to faculty and asking for classes, I can't just say, hey, can I have your seats? I mean, I have to say, hey, if I use your sheet seats, this is how you're going to benefit as an mm-hmm. instructor, but this is also how the students are going to benefit. So it was a real concerted effort at that point to go to the colleges. And then as we've grown, we started at college level. And as more people started buying into this concept, and I give all kinds of credit to the faculty who've been teaching these seminars and people just like you who could say it actually was a help in your class, not a hindrance. You know, we weren't hurting anybody. Um, then those, those grew. And now we can say every major has a learning community because now we went from college college level to major specific, and they are all major specific now. Mm-hmm. And let's, um, before we transition to how the program evolved and sort of the strategies that, that work to make it grow, what, what are some of the um, important headline takeaways about the success of the program? Because I know that you have collected data. And so what are some of the areas in which you've seen, you can point to it and say, look, the learning community program had a, had a positive impact in these areas? Well, um, we like to, to look at some broad thing. I'll look broadly first. Uh, first things we looked at were retention and GPA. And we could tell by the people in our, our initial probably 10 years, we could see a marked difference between students who were in the learning community who were not. And so it was very clear the students in the learning community were retained at a higher rate. Makes perfect sense. They had connections. And they also had higher GPAs, which was really interesting because we weren't giving them anything other than these courses together and the the, um, cohort, so to speak, to help them. So cohort learning, I think, pays a large part of the success. Mm -hmm. So we were able to see they had higher GPAs at the end of their freshman year. Now, remember, we're a first-term-only program. So the fact that their freshman year GPAs were higher was significant. Mm -hmm. Probation rates were lower in general. Um, the other thing we started to see is that the, our university probation rate went up significantly. We did, we did some strategic planning of um, all of university college who are undecided, undeclared students were put in a learning community because it seemed to make sense. If we're helping our students, this was our highest risk, pop, risk population in terms of they didn't have an academic home yet other than our university college. Once we put them in, huge differences in retention across the, across the university. Um, 
So that's the, I, I would say, the bigger picture mm-hmm. identifiers. Um, we also looked at our Nessie data, and, and going back to that survey, and said, can we see some differences with these students? And, um, and those are not. And we found significant differences. And I totally go to my uh, institutional research colleagues because I am not going to be that person that does. I'm more of the planner and organizer. Yeah, They're yeah. going to do the research. Uh, anyway, institutional research, um, and Joni Wadi particularly, was able to show us through the retention, through the data in Nessie, the students in learning communities and those who are not, the ones who in learning communities had a significant increase in their connections with faculty, hmm. outside of class interactions, and their um, comfort level and, and their willingness to want to be a part of this community and to come back. And so we found that comparing Nessie data. I was like, okay, this is good stuff. We have that. Um, we continually look as a unit to, that's more of an outcomes sort of, or looking at that. We also look at process evaluations every semester. What can we do better? We're now learn, measuring our learning outcomes. Are they actually learning anything? <laughs> Not just mm-hmm. we're making connections, but are they learning anything? Um, so we're seeing some differences there where they actually are learning more about their academic homes. They're learning more about what it's like to be uh, a student at the, in the expectations we have. Um, Try to think what else we are, we're measuring because we're looking. We look at everything all the time because we want to make sure we're, we're always trying to do new things. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, like the learning outcomes, was one of our newer things. Oh, but the best thing I think about all of this is. Four or five years ago, um, Nessie came back and did a follow-up research project with us. We were one of eight schools selected to do a follow-up because our difference in the Nessie data from 2000 to the time that we were doing until, you know, 2010, we had gone up to be one of the leaders and, like, one of the higher people in terms Mm -hmm. of retention of first-year students. Mm -hmm. And they wanted to know why. And they did a follow-up with us. And Learning Communities was one of the main reasons why. Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. That was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. It was really fascinating. Um, so, so let's transition and, uh, you know, so we've established the fact that the program has definite success. And, you know, speaking as a teacher, I saw that, and I think you're absolutely right, that the students in the learning communities had a not only a built-in social support network to get through a, a big class like that, but but they studied together mm-hmm. and they talked about their projects together. And um, that's a that, that to me is a qualitatively different experience than the students sort of working by themselves that's part of that 400-person class. So I, I even in, in the classroom level, I could see the positive impact of it. L- let's talk about the story about how this program grew up at Ohio University because, um, you know, I, I've got the perspective of, of remembering the very, very beginnings of it. And, you know, it started from nothing. And now, and and as you said, at one point in time, had a couple hundred students in it. And now it has, you know, a a big chunk of our incoming freshman class in it. So it's a real success story of a program that started out intentionally, um, you know, to get it on its feet and then scaled up in what I think is actually a short period of time you know, in in the world of a university that moves at a glacial pace, this program grew very quickly and very successfully. So can you kind of tell the story about how it started and some of the things that happened along the way that allowed you as the sort of the program director to grow the program so quickly and successfully? Well, um, like I said, we started because, uh, well, there was this national trend. And um, I give all kinds of credit to a former colleague at Ohio University, Dr. Tammy Kerrig. She's still in higher education. Um, Actually, she's now a 
faculty member in higher education um, at her institution. And Tammy was working on her dissertation at the time, was doing research in this new trend, higher, these learning communities. And so saw some real benefits that were going on nationally. And um, she went to our housing and res life staff and said, could you, could we do this? And, and that's where I would say I give all kinds of credit to Dale Tampke, who is who said, well, it's just a matter of putting him in rooms. So heck, yeah, we can do that. And I, in, in Dale's way, he probably said it exactly like that. Heck, <laughs> yeah, we can do it. So um, we were able to put that in. And um, and then the director of residence life at the time was able to pull those of us in our staff and say, we're going to do this. And, and so this is the new thing. Let's try it. Um, and so that's kind of how I got involved in it. And it was very much a housing thing at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, Tammy, as a doctoral student and as someone she actually was uh, fa- a staff member in university college, didn't have the connection with the fa- with the rest of campus as much. This was more of a very intellectual um, thing that she had seen and found. Mm-hmm. So um, it really, I think what made the difference is we started at doing that in a, in a very small bit with people we kind of knew on campus. And then as it grew and as we started to pull in more people into either teaching as you did, and you got to see some of those interactions specifically in your class, but also the people who were teaching were able to say, oh, this is really cool. Um, one of my probably marked moments was when your uh, one of your directors of your school, actually the um, uh, Tom Hodson actually mm-hmm. said to me after teaching, he taught one of our learning communities that we'd focused in, and I already said the story about how that we decided to pull in more college-like uh, coursework. Mm-hmm. And by doing that, then I thought, well, this would be great. Gosh, wouldn't it be great if a faculty member in that area were teaching the seminars? And so Tom taught one, and I remember after, after I asked him how it went, and he said, well, I had no idea that they were so concerned about laundry and, and homesickness and how to, you know, making connections. He just didn't have that understand. Like he wasn't doing that in his day to day. Those of us in student development were saying it all the time, but this yeah. was a kind of an eye-opening experience for him. And it also showed me, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have this really student affairs centric view of what's going on. That and then having people like David Descutner, t- Dr. David Descutner as our dean saying, you know, this seminar is really hard. And I thought to teach, and I thought, well, this is really easy to teach. Well, it's easy because I'm a student development person. Mm-hmm. If you're someone within a specific discipline, that's challenging. So we had to, we learned a lot just by listening and saying, how can we make this work? Because ultimately, the goal is our students making connections in their academic world with their faculty and staff within those colleges. That's what we're here for. They're not going to know who I am. They're not going to remember who put together a program. That's not even relevant to them. Mm-hmm. But if they can make that connection, that's going to last them and probably beyond the time they graduate. So we started focusing on that. Like, how can we help those connections happen? So we're just big puzzle piece people. We put it together mm-hmm. and then we let it all happen. Um, and so that was a real um, interesting experience for us. Uh, letting Getting rid of the residential requirement was a big thing. Um, actually, in Ohio, the majority of the learning community programs have a residential component. Ours don't. We found that our residence life program is strong on its own. Um, And now we have – and so while students weren't signing up, they didn't want to live together and take classes together. And we learned that from our engineering students. We had a focus group with them, and they said, we don't want to live with other people who are like us. Like it was this – and they said a little bit more – they used other things. um, And I I will quote them. We don't want to live with a bunch of nerds, unquote. That's how they said. So they said – so we're like, well, then, okay, let's get rid of the residential component, and let's just focus on those courses. Within a year, that program – quadrupled. Wow. Just by listening to Mm -hmm. what they needed and saying, well, we can do that because it doesn't take away from what we're trying to do ultimately. Right, right. 
And if this is a, an impediment for us doing that, let's get rid of that and let's do something that's going to work. And so once we started focusing on what was working and and then, I mean, we had failures along the way. I mean, we, we've tried, I can't even tell you how many times to have an international student learning community. Um, but now in students, international students weren't signing up because they didn't want to be with other international students. They wanted to be with domestic students. And domestic students weren't signing up because they didn't want like X, Y, Z. There were different things. And most often it's because they're competing with their learning community and their major. Mm-hmm. So we said, okay, this is we're focusing on majors because that's the most impactful thing for us. Um, so the, I mean, you know, I can go step by step on different things we did and problems that we had, but the majority is is when we've listened to our students, we've listened to our departments, we've said, what can we do for you, and we continue that communication line. I meet with every department every January mm-hmm. and ask them what is it, or college depends on what what group I'm working with. What worked, what didn't work, what can we do better. Uh, and so we do every year, and I have a plan, and every year it's a little bit more. And so now we're at 95% of our first-year class. We have 4,000 people enrolled right now. We'll have some um, attrition before our school starts, but we'll also have a few more add-on. So it'll it'll average – it'll go around 4,000. I mean, that, that in and of itself is amazing that mm-hmm. you can saturate that large of a percentage of an incoming freshman class – at a major public university. I mean, that's a significant undertaking. You know? Well, what's really fun to me is when I get calls from departments now. I mean, I can still remember even five, ten years ago having to go plead. May mm-hmm. I please have seats here? And here's why. And here's how we're going to help. We will never, you know, we will never take that for granted. We will not abuse those seats. We will, we will try to work with you. I'm not asking you as a faculty member for anything other than just letting us have that space. Mm-hmm. Here's some opportunities for you if you wish to take them, but you don't have to. I mean, they're going to be in your class anyway. Just let us put us in these groups. And now I have departments coming to me. I just met with a department yesterday who said, we want to know how we can get more of these learning communities in our classes, like our classes in more learning communities. And it's a small department that I've tended to shy away from because in a small class, if I'm holding 20, 25 seats and that group doesn't go, then I'm, it's a risk. Yeah, I don't, yeah. But, oh, oh, my gosh, it's been amazing. We've, that's, a whole, that's a very different world yeah. than when we were out trying to get them. And now I'm in the position of saying, absolutely, let's see what we can do. And, mm-hmm. and, and we're getting buy-in from faculty and, and those same people. I'm saying, you know what would be even really better is if you would teach one of our learning communities because then they're going to get to know you personally. Yeah. So, it's, you know, so I'm, I'm kind of pushing that more now to have those. And so that's been exciting. One other thing that, that I, I would add on to your story about how it evolved um, that, that you mentioned, that there were a couple key administrators that took the message that, that you were telling them and really broadened it to the entire university community. And so I remember really distinctly that there was a retreat that was done um, at one of our local um, state parks, mm-hmm. and it was focused on the first year experience. And a big part of that was the learning communities. We also started having discussions about a common book book program um, at that same time. And so there, there was there was a few key academic administrators that really did a great job of saying we've got evidence of success that we want to broaden this and that sort of got everyone swimming in the same direction and I think set the stage for you having the ability then to grow the program and to help keep all of us going in that same direction, so to speak. 
Absolutely. And I would give all kinds of credit to Dr. David Scutner because he was the dean of University yeah. College at the time, dean of University College and associate provost for undergraduate education. He's got mm-hmm. a very long title. He had one. Um, now he is a, was an interim president with the now interim provost. So for those of listening to the podcast, he's someone who we really like to have involved, but he has connections. And he's yeah. just a good guy who will be able to say he can take the information and interpret it and share it with people in the, on their level. A big learning thing for me was to understand the difference between the academic culture and the student affairs culture and to bridge that. And some of my biggest learning curves have been at that point. Um, David knows that stuff. Mm -hmm. And and he was instrumental when we were doing those foundations of excellence for our first year, which is out of the the National Research Center for for first-year students in transition. Mm -hmm. We'll plug there. Uh, Anyway, so he was instrumental in that. I would also say, and in different ways, our provosts throughout the years have Mm -hmm. been very supportive. David, I think, has fed them information and gotten them very involved. But when Kathy Krendel was here, former dean of, of, of College of Communication, she was – when she was our provost, she taught one of our learning communities. Mm-hmm. I mean she was right there in the trenches with the students. And that stuff, I can't – like I, first of all, I right. can't ever force somebody to do it. But they're in places where they can then talk to mm-hmm. people and influence some of those – Thing. So I think it was a little bit of a top-down, ground-up sort of thing happening yeah. at the same time. Maybe it's a perfect storm. I don't know. It was great. It's been great. Well, and, and importantly, I mean, it wasn't just David. It was also you and people like you that had a lot of uh, personal connections across campus and across the traditional, you know, silos of campus that was able to, you know, really through relationships get everybody to say, this sounds like a cool idea. And and that that sort of personal relationship building um, on a big campus is really necessary for any program like this to take hold, I think. Absolutely. Well, I'm real keen on connections. And so yeah, for yeah. me, anytime we can help someone make a connection in a positive way, then I think we're all going to be better. And that's definitely for our first-year students. As we're sort of um, getting close to concluding this a little bit, what were some of the – I mean, you mentioned one of the challenges was recognizing that having the communities be residentially co-located – was a challenge that you encountered and resolved. Were there other challenges like that along the way that um, would be important stories for people to hear um, if they were considering something like this? I think my first time going to a department um, meeting with faculty um, where the chair pulled together all the faculty within an, an area, and I thought, oh, I know this. I go to meetings all the time, and my meetings were all student affairs related, and again, that's my background, so student development. So I, I went to that meeting, and it was – and there, it was a big eye opener. I had no You're idea. Being so nice. I know. <laughs> I'm trying. How can I say this? Ted? Um, the people have say and do things in those meetings that would never happen in student affairs. Much more direct. Much more. Um, I don't want to say cutthroat at all. But there's no. It's not about let me help you feel better about my decision I'm making. It's all about no, you're crazy, and this has. And I'm mm-hmm. definitely not quoting, but it was that sort of an experience where people were just. They, I don't, I don't, I left there feeling a little overwhelmed and definitely felt like I had been attacked because that was not my experience. Mm-hmm. And, and they weren't being mean. They were just being very direct and very purposeful and um, opinions mm-hmm. were there. And I didn't agree with them, but I thought, oh my gosh, this isn't about us coming to a common understanding. This is about how I did not know anything I was talking about. And I really didn't. I mean, I didn't understand their place. I didn't understand what their what it was like to be a faculty member in higher education. I, that was a completely foreign concept for me. And I had to 
put on a different lens at that point in ways I never thought that I would have to. And I think that's just what happens when we step out of our comfort zone. Right. I would say that that department did the best thing for me professionally to learn, and it opened my eyes. Okay, and actually, and David was right there. He's like, "Oh no, that wasn't a big deal." <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> I thought we'd been killed, or like, "Oh my gosh, this will never work." But we, when we came down to it, it made me step put, step out of myself and put myself in that other group's shoes, whatever that group was. And it was the best. I think that was probably best learning curve um, or learning experience I had. Um, and then just being able to say, "Okay, I understand." Here's what you're looking for. Here's what I'm looking for. Let's come together. But I also had to have my homework done. Mm -hmm. I had to have the research. I had to have the assessment. I had to have knowledge beyond Wendy at Ohio University. Otherwise, this is not going to work. I would say what's happened, and and that's how we've grown. Um, Again, I've talked about talking to people and the people who are in the trenches, whether that's students, our learning community leaders, our faculty and staff who are teaching. We want to hear from them because it's very important to do that and to keep those in our forefront of what we're trying to do. um, I think that that was probably my other. Um, we learned, again, about the residential, get rid of the residential. We, I learned more about the importance of assessment than I thought, and I now know a lot more than I used to know about how I assess. I used to think assessment was research, and I, I just, I'm a practitioner more than I'm a researcher. So I, was, I shied away from that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. And then I, went, I learned more about my assessment process. I'm like, oh, I am actually a researcher. I didn't yeah. realize that. Yeah. I had this persona of research being library faculty focusing on this, you know, like, and I respected it, didn't do it, but actually I do. And Mm -hmm. so I think those are probably the biggest, the research or the assessment, seeing the other point of view and trying to to come to a, even compromising Mm -hmm. without compromising what we're trying to accomplish. Cause I think that that benefits all of us, but. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, sort of next steps, have you, are there things you would like to try in the program or that you're thinking about trying um, and sort of looking not in retrospect, but into the future. Absolutely. Um, what we're trying to do now is connect <clears throat> our students from orientation to the first day of class. And so the last year we started the first time just this initial, can we reach out to these students? We know what groups they're in, or at least we have the majority of them. They're not completely set to the first day of class, but we still we have a good group of people. Can we re- reach out to them earlier? And who's the best person to reach out to them? Well, it's their peers. Mm-hmm. So we've um, gone through a completely different process of hiring our learning community leaders earlier and getting them in our system. So now, as of the beginning, I think July 9th, they are sending information out to their students over the summer. Now, we hope they're checking their emails. We yeah. hope they're. We hope that they're looking in the right places for this. But having their peer reach out, we're explaining who that person is, and then we're letting the peers be personalized. Here's what my first year was like. Here's what I mm-hmm. wish I had known. Let me. And, and if you have any questions, let me know. And then the students are contacting their peers before the first day of class. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be a, an important tool right now um, for people because we, while we're helping them once they get here, a lot of their anxiety starts to build over the summer. They come to. Orientation, they get a taste of us, mm-hmm. and then they have this two and a half month or two month window that's just depending on when they come to orientation. That's just a void. So we're trying to fill that void a little bit. So we're sending a series of emails to them. Um, I think we can booster that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, I also happen to have the privilege of serving on the first year council, and we're looking at ways of engaging more faculty in, and not the, the ones who are teaching, although we have a robust group of people doing that. But how can we get people in your situation that you described at 400-person class to be understanding of the concept so that they can use it as a tool 
to help them do more. Um, are there ways for us to do that? Can we get more information there? Um, but the first year council is made up of mostly faculty and we asked them, what would you want your first year students globally? And now we're going to have a video contest this fall where we are asking first year students or any upper class students to come up with these quick videos about what's a syllabus. Um, something about resilience and being able to mm. respond, something about connecting with faculty during their office hours. Why is that important? Something about taking responsibility for their actions, not trying to say, oh, it's because the professor wrote a, uh, the test was too hard. Well, maybe you didn't study enough. So, mm -hmm. um, and there, there's another, I can't get it on the top of my head, but there are five areas we're going to want to do videos and we'll have the students do them. And so it's from their point. And why not just get more visibility? But then we can use the videos in our learning community seminars. Totally, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or in your class. I mean, in any class anybody yeah. wants to. They're going to be available at the First Year Council website. It's really getting the, you know, you're, you're, you're really describing getting the students to a place where they're, they're training the next generation exactly. of Bobcats. Exactly. Right? So. And that's where we should that's a big part. That and then the faculty seeing that they and they're and I think we're coming so far. That's part of the transition I see. When I hear people in the college in the colleges and departments saying, these are my learning communities and these students are the ones who are now doing research with my group of faculty, mm -hmm. friends, colleagues, and we're we're pulling them in now because now we have them. That's great. Yeah. Um, two concluding questions that are related to one another. So as a um, as someone that's been around a lot of first-year students, um, what advice do you have for any any student getting ready to go to college um, at the start of the next academic year? And, and what advice do you have for their parents? Well, I always tell first-year students to be open to possibility and to make connections. If someone reaches out to you and says, hey, come and find me in the fall. I'm going to take you to lunch. Then you go and find them. Make, like, do that because those connections, you just have no idea how far they're going to go for you. Put yourself out there with groups. And if a program has, if there's something like a learning community, then get to know those people in that learning community. Get to know the people in your, in your residence hall. Get to know the ones around you. And not just where you say and wave hi when you're in the hallway, but really get to know them them because that's going to help them be able to handle so many more things when they have a community of care around them. Um, it's just a huge thing. So that's the biggest thing I would say to students. Get connected mm -hmm. and don't hesitate to ask questions and talk to somebody. Like, try. Um, and then for parents, I think the biggest thing for parents, because um, one of the issues we have with parents, and I, that's totally an ancillary thing, is that um, helicopter hovering kind mm -hmm. of idea. Parents, you need to let your students go. You need to let them learn. And sometimes they're going to learn the hard way. Sometimes they're going to make mistakes. But sometimes they're not, and they're going to do amazing things. And maybe they made the mistake, but they learned the best from it, and that's the, then they're not going to make that mistake again. Let them go. Be there to support them and to listen and to encourage them to find their connections and to find the resources themselves. When you step in, parents, we can't help them as much. Mm -hmm. it, you know, if you give them us as contacts, we're here for them. And we care about students, too. And, and I think that's really important from a parent perspective. That's all I want to know is that you care about my child yeah. and yeah. that you're going to take care of my child for me. Yeah. Or with me. Well, Wendy, you um, you know, the whole time that I've known you, you've been a tireless advocate for students. And I think that over the over the last decade or so, you have really raised awareness um, among not just faculty, but I think the entire campus that we should we should not think of students in a monolithic way and that we should understand that there are points in time that students need different type of support. And not only through your program, but now in the way that we're doing academic 
academic advising with first-year students is different. Um, and so I think that you've really raised the campus awareness about the uniqueness of these transitional risk factors um, that students experience. I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you. I'm sure there's a lot more involved in it, but I appreciate it. <laughs> um, and, and, and thanks for being on the program. If, if you as listeners are interested in learning more about the Learning Community Program at Ohio University, you can visit the website, which is linked in the text accompanying this podcast. Um, we really appreciate your time, Wendy, and congratulate you on the successes that you've had in the program and look forward to having you come back and talk about some of these new directions and how they've uh, panned out. Thank you. Um, Thank you all for listening to Teaching Matters, produced by WOUB Public Media. You can always listen at woub.org backslash listen. We also are available through several popular podcasting apps, including Google Play, iTunes, and NPR One. You can contact staff of the podcast with ideas, questions, or comments through our Facebook page. Simply search for Teaching Matters Podcast in Facebook. Our audio engineer today is Adam Rich. I'm Scott Titsworth on behalf of WOUB Public Media. Thank you for listening and have a great day.